start a new study this morning that will last through uh, almost to the end of the summer, Second Peter. Uh, several years ago, those of you who have been here a while, uh, I preached through First Peter. Well, I think it was one of the first books that I ever preached through when I started preaching regularly. Second Peter has been really the topic or target of critical scholars for some time for many reasons. Uh, first Peter, there was never any uh, real debate about among even uh, the most critical of critics. Uh, but Second Peter has come under all sorts of attack for many reasons. But we can be sure, based on internal evidence, the way the language is, certain words that Peter uses uniquely that connect well with First Peter, uh, as well as the attestation of other writers in Scripture, and then the external evidence of early church fathers uh, speaking of, in particular, Origen speaking of uh, this book being written by Peter. Uh, it is most likely, however, this book was written closer to the end of his life. He's a different man in many respects from the time he wrote First Peter. Only seven years separate the two, most likely, but much happened in Peter's life in those years. And further, it's probably likely that Peter used a certain method where he had someone, he would write or dictate what it was he wanted to communicate, and working with a secretary, if you will, all under the ministry of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, uh, works that letter and then re and talks about that letter with this person, the secretary he's working with, and then puts out this letter. The way I compare such writing, and Paul did similarly, is when I write a newsletter article, which I just did recently, I give it to a very faithful assistant to look over. That faithful assistant then comes to me and says, this, this, and this could be better said this way or said that way. And then I, yes, I approve that based on my authority to be my letter. God uses that process and in inspiration and gives us, I believe, the book of Second Peter in just this way. And internally, again, it meshes beautifully with the book of Jude and introduces concepts that are backed up by the whole of Scripture, and it becomes really a tremendous book for us to study as it gives us very practical guidance on an important marriage, the marriage between grace and knowledge. I want you to hear this closely. We have to have God's grace to know anything about God. Absolutely. But to grow in grace, God has made it so that as we grow in knowledge, we grow then in grace, and they are in concert together, grace and knowledge together. You can't just keep growing in grace without ever knowing God more. But he has to grant the grace initially for us to even know him. Grace and knowledge. This is really the underlying theme of 2 Peter, growing in grace and knowledge. In fact, one of the verses we'll look at as I read the text in a moment, verse 2, says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. But if you go to the last verse of the book, and I'll read it for you, kind of like a sandwich to begin the thought in verse 2, ends the thought in verse 18 of chapter 3, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this concept that will pervade and I'll continue to return to is the need for us as Christians to grow in grace and knowledge. And I'll say one more thing before I read the text. I think it's a particular warning for a church that spends much time studying the word, studying theology, studying doctrine, all beautiful high pursuits. But it's important for us to recognize the need to be growing in grace and knowledge, not just knowledge. On the other hand, not just grace, where you just kind of say everything is lovey-dovey in that sense of grace. Rather, grace and knowledge together, in concert, that's the way God's will works its way out in the life of the church. Hear God's word as I read the introduction of this wonderful letter to 2 Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let us pray. Lord, we are in need of grace. Lord, we are in need of knowledge. I pray, Father, that you would give us a great zeal to pursue these things. Lord, that we might grow in grace and knowledge. And Lord, just as your word says, ending this wonderful book, to you be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity, that our reason for growth would be for your glory, for the expansion of your kingdom, for the expansion of your influence, for the transforming of many lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we begin this morning a new book, I want to paint for you an illustration of a concept I just came to learn this last week in a way I had not known before, and then connect that to the concepts here. Now, as I've talked to many of you, I've found that several of you over the course of your life have partaken of one of these all-inclusive vacations. Never heard of one before this time. In fact, Sherry and I had saved a certain amount of money so that we could go hike into the Grand Canyon this year, stay there overnight, and come back. That was going to be our big trip together. So we'd saved a certain amount of money. Turns out you've got to reserve your room down at the bottom of the canyon like a year or 14 months ahead. I thought five months ahead would be good. Well, it wasn't. So we decided to do this instead, a three-night, four-day vacation in Mexico. Just was there last weekend. Well, you pay one price, and then you get everything. You, you get food, you get your room, there's entertainment, drink. It's, it's on the ocean. It's a beautiful spot. And really, conceivably, in four days, if you're a good vacationer, and I'm not, but if you're a good vacationer, you could just spend the whole time right there in the resort and never spend another dime. They give you a little red bracelet you put on, and that entitles you to everything. You got it all. I thought this was an amazing concept. <laughs> Further, I'm not a good vacationer. I will totally admit that my wife is wonderful at this. She's able to just shut off from the world and... And she runs at a real high pace, but she's able to shut down. I just have a difficulty. I was worried that I'd be an awful person to vacation with for that time. Well, God granted some calmness to me because I really psyched myself up to relax during those four days. <laughs> but as we were going to the front desk and we got these bracelets put on, and I kind of was coming to understand, and I'm used to any, va- the reason why I don't like vacation a lot is I'm relatively cheap. And the idea of getting nickel and dimed anywhere you go, I don't like. So I, we'd always go to my folks' house in western New York, see Niagara Falls. <laughs> So here we are, I'm just, I got this concept that we're going to be paying all the time for stuff, and my wife keeps reminding me, no, it's all-inclusive, it's all-inclusive. And I'm standing at the, ge- at the desk, just waiting for, you know, to have to tip someone, or something's got to happen. And instead, this, this older couple came in, and they had the red bracelet on, and they looked really calm, and they said, oh, is this your first time here? We've been coming here for 10 years. And, and they start telling us all the things they're doing, and I'm adding up in my mind, that's got to cost this. And it's, no, it's all part of the price you pay. What's the difference between us and that couple? Well, they had knowledge and experience that told them what their status was in that place, and they could experience it all because they knew. Now, were we really any different? We had the same access to all of it. I just didn't know it, or I just didn't experience it at that point, or I hadn't heard it enough, and I didn't know what was available. And so for me, standing there was still a little bit binding, even though in reality, as far as the hotel and resort was concerned, we were in equal standing, both of us. 
For them, though, they had a greater access, a greater availability to the various things that could be done, and they were already starting to relax knowing all that could be done without having to pay anything more for it. I would compare growing in grace and knowledge in a very similar way, and I think this text bears it out. We have been given a position that's equal, but your experience of that will depend on your growth and knowledge of it. You have a position. God looks at you and looks at everyone here and doesn't see difference among you because the righteousness of Christ covers you and he accepts all who are connected or in union with Jesus. He sees you all equally because of Christ and his love for Christ. The problem is many of us are walking around as though we're still orphans or we're walking around like we still got to pay for stuff or we're walking around not realizing what we've been granted. That's the difference between the believer who's bound up in their life in slavery still, even though they have position before the Lord, which should grant great freedom. Now, this was an older couple who had been coming for some 10 years before, so it took time. I'm not here to tell you that just all of a sudden you're going to learn something new this morning that will totally set you free to no longer be stressed in your walk with God. But I'm telling you that it's a walk, it's a concert of grace and knowledge in your life that has to be understood in light of the things that this epistle starts to lay out for us that will help you into a life of grace, growth in grace and knowledge. C.S. Lewis said wonderfully as he was talking about the importance of knowing God and studying who God is. He said that theology itself, the study of God that is, is practical, it's, it's livable, it's something that means something now, it's relevant to us. If you do not listen to theology, Lewis says, in mere Christianity, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. And so we are pushed forward as we consider this book and this text to study who God is, always in connection with how it lives itself out in life. Uh, one of my favorite books that I'll commend to you is possibly an application of this sermon series. Maybe you could pick this book up at the book table if you have it, read it again, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. This would be a perfect book to read in conjunction with the study of Second Peter. The idea of growing in grace and knowledge, that's the best book I know written by a person who's not inspired by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate what the scripture says about coming to know God better. So if I were to pick a book to recommend to you, that would be the one in conjunction with this series. Listen to what Packer says in Knowing God. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business. For those who do not know about God, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and even lose your soul. Simply meaning, standing there at the desk, you could just be clueless and end up staying the whole time in your room thinking you can't do anything, when in fact you've been granted access to all these things. Grace and knowledge. What is grace? Grace, very simply, is God's undeserved favor poured out on those of us, all of us, who deserve only wrath and judgment. His favor is earned by Christ for us. That's what grace means. When we speak of grace in general terms, it always refers back to what Christ has purchased us before the Father, that we can receive his undeserved favor because of Jesus. Knowledge means, and literally in this book, 
The word for knowledge is epigenosis. Gnosis is the general word for knowledge, which the Gnostics get their name from. Epigenosis is, an, uh, is, is a ramped up version of gnosis. Epi toward knowledge is what it means. It means full knowledge or mature knowledge. So epigenosis is the word Peter uses here. Paul uses it 15 times. Hebrews uses it once. It's used in the New Testament very uniquely compared to other literature in the day. And so, grace and knowledge, knowledge of our undeserved favor poured out upon us by God. And it's a growing, maturing, full, fulfilling faith. Now, let's consider together this text. First, we see in verse 1 that we must know what Christ's righteousness has provided. We have to, in other words, know our standing, know our benefits, know that we've got the red bracelet on, so to speak. We've got to know this before we can go anywhere further. And the first verse explains this. To fully live in light of God's undeserved favor, we have to understand what is ours in Christ. To fully avail ourselves of all the benefits that come from this all-inclusive stay, you might say, we have to know what our standing is. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle, of Jesus Christ. So Peter identifies himself as the author of this book. He's the same Peter who was the fisherman, the same Peter who often spoke before he thought, the same Peter who walked on the water one minute and fell in the next, the same Peter who swore he would never deny Christ and did so with a swearing word. At the same time, though, this is the Peter who was graciously restored by Christ and was made an apostle. An apostle is different than a disciple. A disciple is a learner. We're all disciples in that sense. But an apostle is a special spiritual gift that gives an individual the spirit of prophecy. The prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ. They were commissioned by Christ. They were given revelatory gifts, gifts that could reveal God's word. You, it was uniquely given to just these men who lived at that time. He is an apostle now, going from where he was to an apostle. Certain things that we must know in order to grow in grace. And he starts by identifying himself as the apostle. But then look at the second part of verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please recognize the profundity of this theological concept in light of much of what is taught about Peter. Peter here, the apostle, is saying to the general audience, this is considered a general epistle spread throughout the churches that were in existence. He's saying, yes, I'm an apostle, but the faith you have, rank and file member, lay person, is the same as mine. Why does he say that? Because faith is not something we conjure, it's a gift of God, and it's given equally to every believer. This is related directly to the status God gives us when he brings us into the beloved that is Christ, makes us in union with Jesus. We have equal standing across the board. Now, access to that faith, exercise of that faith, that's uniquely tied to each individual as God works it out. But insofar as our starting point, insofar as our status, we are all given faith. And Peter says, my faith is no better than yours. The apostle Peter's faith is no different or not more superior to yours. There's not a hierarchy of people who have a better faith than the others. There may be more exercised faiths that are worked out by God's grace, but there's not such a thing as my faith, the quality of my faith is greater than yours. So he starts by saying this profound thing that points them away from his apostleship into the fact that Jesus is the ground of our righteousness and our equality among believers. This becomes very important as we consider what faith is. It's rather the gift of God, not something we conjure. In fact, Ephesians 2 says it very well. 
for by grace you have been saved through faith. Saved by grace through faith is one clause. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. What? Being saved by grace through faith. It's not just grace is the gift of God, it's being saved by grace through faith. The instrument of faith that God uses to save us is actually a gift of God. If it's a gift of God, he doesn't give a higher quality gift to one believer and a lesser quality to the other because it's tied to Christ and his righteousness. So Peter says to the people who are maybe in awe of the apostles, it says, we are on equal ground. And this is a starting point. We are in equal position. This has got to be the starting point before we can access all the benefits that are ours in Christ is that every one of us, no matter how long you've been a believer, no matter what's happened in your life, if you've been born again, if you have been put in union with Christ by trust in him, you have equal status with me or with anyone else who is in Christ. That gives us power. That's a base to realize that it's God's gift that gives us victory in life. We could not possibly begin to enjoy our vacation unless we understood that we were legitimate, paid-up occupants of this resort. We could not have access to all those things if we weren't aware of the fact of our position. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, how, how have we been getting e given equal status? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God who becomes man, who takes on our nature. He takes on our sins at the cross. God accepts his offering because he is a perfect offering, lives a perfect life in our stead as our federal head, the second Adam, and now we have status before God that's accepted. And how accepted are we? Well, we're only as accepted as Jesus is accepted to the Father. And how well do you think that is? What do you think God thinks of his son? That's what he thinks of you now. That's the starting point. That is the beginning point of understanding the Christian life and growing in grace, which is what I've just described as grace, and knowledge. But you've got to know that in order to experience that and live it out. Look at verse 2. We learn a second concept that helps us in seeing grace and knowledge in concert. Learning more about God and Christ multiplies grace and peace. Now there's an emphasis on Christ here that I place, but please note that God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and God the Son are mentioned. In verses 3 and 4, it is more generally, generally referring to God the Father. But here in verse 2, learning more about God and Christ multiplies grace and peace. Hopefully what I just said to you uh, moves some level of appreciation again for the grace by which you've been saved. Maybe you came in here today and you've been living by works. You know you're saved by grace, but you've had a week that you're totally judging based on how you did, not based on how Christ did. And so you're feeling a little bit down about it. And you come in and you sit down and you're thinking to yourself, well, how did I stack up this week? And I hope that you, there's a certain release that comes over you that God does not ask the question, how did you stack up? But rather, what has Christ done for my beloved? And so that grace should give you a sense of peace now that you can relax before God. It's illustrated by our liturgy as we go through meeting God and then we stop to pass the peace. And the passing of the peace means that we've received grace. We're peaceful with God now because of Christ and we can have peace with one another. So hopefully there's a sense of peace that you've gathered. Verse 2 says, may grace and peace then be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Literally this means grace and peace together as a complex be multiplied to you. How does it multiply? By growing in knowledge of God. By coming to understand him more. 
to experience him also in connection with knowing him. It's not just a body of facts that you're putting in your head, but rather there's an experience of God as you read his living word and you live it out among one another in, in the world. So grace and peace becomes multiplied as you grow in your knowledge of God and what his purposes are. Uh, you're able to daily come into connection with the fact of God's grace shown to you. God's favor upon us provides peace. That describes our relationship with God because he has shown us favor. For those who had been there before, and I noticed that Sherry and I could see that there were people, and I heard the way folks were talking, that they had been coming to the same spot for many years. There was just a distinct difference in how they carried themselves throughout this vacation. I mean, they just kind of moseyed from point A to point B, and they just looked relaxed earlier than I could get relaxed. And I could just recognize that there was a certain appreciation for the slowdown of lifestyle, the reason why they were there. They knew what it would accomplish for them. There's just a knowledge that came with experience, not just that they read in a book. I want you to think about this. If I just read in a book, especially my particular personality, and, you know, 10 ways in which you can relax and then kind of, you know, really work at it. And, just, and it's all in my knowledge, you know, that's knowledge I have, but it's, it's not experience because I'm not doing it or I'm not seeing how or wrestling with how this truth that's revealed should be experienced. And, and I, I don't know how to describe it more than to say it's just not about knowledge or filling your head with stuff. It has to do with experiencing as you come to know. And that's what is meant by the growth or the multiplication of grace as you come to know God and know Christ. Very practically, I think in addition to the study of his word, there has to be a living among one another as believers. So as you live among one another as believers, stuff's going to happen between us and the opportunity to live out scripture. Needs will arise. We can respond. Sin will occur between us. We can respond. There will be opportunity for praise and worship. We can respond. So this is a way we come to know and study, but then live out, and then grace and peace are multiplied. Further, beyond just our own walls, as we grow in this way, we go out from here in various places God has placed you, both as individual families and members, uh, being ambassadors for Christ wherever you are, but also sending out mission, mission teams and going out to gather in or to infiltrate the world with Christianity, so to speak. We can do this as we come to read the word and then live the word out in our midst and in beyond these walls. So it's not ever just simply reading your Bible and studying the, the newest systematic that's come out. Those are wonderful things, but they have to be done in connection to activity. And that's always what is being displayed, not just by what the apostles said, but the very way they lived their lives. I mean, what were the apostles? They were, they were missionaries for what they believed. Really, it ought to be the lifelong pursuit of every believer, and don't compare yourself to others. Well, that person's so smart. So, Listen, you just, with what God has given you, open up his word. I've learned some of the most profound things from people that have the least formal education. Uh, there was a man that I worked uh, for in college. I don't think he ever graduated from high school. And he taught, Nathan and I, who worked with me uh, for this guy, just taught us so many things about practical Christianity. And he always had his Bible with him, and he was reading it. A lot of times, I'll be honest with you, he didn't get the interpretation exactly right. But he so badly wanted just to do what God said in, in his word. And it just it spoke to me in a way that all my seminary professors together didn't have the ability to just because of this man's life experience being different. Learning more about God and Christ will multiply grace and peace in our lives. Now, the bulk of this passage is in verse 3 and 4, and I toyed with just taking this separately, but I really think it's part of, it's 
in, in purposeful connection to these first two verses, obviously. Here, learning more about God advances, then, the process of spiritual maturity. To this point, we're talking about just recognizing where we are, our position. But now we're talking in terms of sanctification or being set apart by God, the process of uh, ridding sin out of our lives so that we might begin to emulate our God, that people might be drawn to the glory of God through the lives lived by sinners who are transformed. Verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is back to our position in Christ. So he's by his power given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, does that cover most of it, brothers and sisters? Well, it says all things pertaining to life and godliness. Life and godliness is a construct there. Our physical life, but godliness connected. Really, God doesn't look at our life in the dichotomistic way we do, where we have sacred or secular, or our spiritual stuff and our carnal stuff. And God just doesn't see it this way. He looks at us as a whole spiritual being. So life and godliness is what we've been given strength to live. Continuing in verse 3. Through, how does it accessed again? How do we know it? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's his divine power, his divine gift. But notice that it is accessed, or we are able to utilize this power when we come to know him better through knowledge of him. In a starting point for the knowledge of God, besides just what the psalmist says is the fear of God, also has to be, and I think we miss this today in modern evangelicalism especially, its starting point is not the felt needs of Tony. The starting point must be the glory of God. That's the distinguishing factor between a Reformed uh, theology and, and others, is that your question that you're trying to always answer first is not how do I feel about this, or how will this help me with this, or how will this uh, advance my cause, make me more successful, make me feel more positive, make me more peaceful. It's rather, how is God glorified by this? Now, I would submit to you that as we live lives to the glory of God, those other things will necessarily take care of themselves, even in hardship. But the glory of God is the focus of why we're growing in knowledge, why we're growing in grace, so that he might be glorified. That's why it says, through the knowledge of him, and the person who's him, just so we know, is the one who called us to his own glory and excellence. He called us to bring glory to himself. He did not call us primarily for our own good first, but rather for his own good. And the beauty of it is, is what's for his own good is for our good as well, if we're united to Christ, as his son who he loves. Learning more about God advances the process of spiritual maturity. I really believe, brothers and sisters, that if you grasp this concept, if you teach your children, if they come to understand that the glory of God is really really the end goal, they will have so many other questions, especially when hardships come their way, so many other questions answered. And it's difficult because what I am concerned most about is my glory. I mean, that's what I want the most. Uh, I could put on spiritual uh, you know, clothing around it to make it not look that way, but ultimately what rubs me wrong about this gospel message is that it brings glory to God, not me. But what actually rubs me right about this message is it's a clear depiction of my sin against the backdrop of, of God's holiness and righteousness. And then the fact that God would save me, now, now it turns me around to the glory of God, which actually is a great benefit to me. But it fights against our humanity. That's why our catechism starts wonderfully with this question, what's the chief end of man? What's the meaning of life? You know, everybody's at what's the meaning of life? And unfortunately, the church not saying much about this. 
you know, the meaning of life is programs. The meaning of life is this, it's that, it's the other thing. Well, the meaning of life is so well embodied in that first question. Man's chief end, the purpose of his life, is to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. It doesn't just say bring glory to God. It's necessary that as we bring glory to God, we will enjoy him. Learning more about God advances the process of spiritual maturity. But look, again, look at verse 4 now. By which, through the knowledge of him who called us, glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. This connects back to the divine power that has granted us all things. This divine power now through this knowledge by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. This is exceedingly emphatic the way Peter writes this. Uh, it, it would be enough knowing the promises of God to say his great promises. But they're not just great in the sense of a macro way of looking at, wow, God is great. They're precious because that's a personal term of how they are to me. They're precious to me. There's something I want. There's something I hold. There's something that they're mine. Precious and great promises. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So by giving us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we become more and more like God. That's sanctification. That's being made more and more like God. So by growing in knowledge, by growing in grace, we become more like God. And then are manifesting who God is to a watching world, bringing more glory to God, so to speak. What are his precious and very great promises? Well, just a few to name. The forgiveness of sins. If that were all I said, that would be a precious and great promise. That God, by his son, by the possession of Christ's righteousness, takes away my sins and doesn't stop there. His promise also, and a promise is defined as what? A commitment. It's not just like we think a promise. You've got to admit, when we say promise, we immediately as human beings say, what do you think of? Well, you thought, think of broken promises. You think of things that have been promised to you and aren't. Or you think of promises you made and weren't. And so the word promise to you just strikes you funny. But promise, when you're talking about God, is commitment. Sure commitment. And so what are his sure commitments? It's the forgiveness of our sins because of Christ. But not just the forgiveness of our sins. The application of his righteousness. So he gives us access to himself. We're accepted by him. This is his commitment. This is a precious and very great promise. But he doesn't stop there. He promises... Uh, to send the Holy Spirit, he gives us the Holy Spirit. Every individual believer has a special ministry, the special indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God himself working in your life to illuminate the word of God, to bring conviction, to encourage you, to exhort you, to give you special divine power to grant you all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is part of his commitment to us. It gives us power and strength for living. But other precious and great promises, the assurance that we have of God's presence, promised in the word, experienced in our soul, care and strength from God. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us, though we may be totally alone physically. Our eventual inheritance in Christ for eternity, that's another great and precious promise. Unfettered and unhindered fellowship to come with God and his creation. A restoration of the garden, so to speak. He has granted to us precious and very great promises, and they are accessible to us as we come to understand our position. We understand what God has done for us. This is why the text in verse 4 again says, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. doesn't mean we become little gods. Partakers of mean we taste of, if you will, or we start to emulate a portion of that. I mean, we cannot be God, but we can emulate him by the image of God, which is tarnished in us because of sin. It's cleaned up and restored in Christ. 
And as he works through this life, works us through this life, we come closer and closer to his son in dependence upon him. I love what Packer says in Knowing God. He says, I, based on the word of God and the great and precious promises, I am graven on the palms of his hands, Packer writes. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. So you see grace and knowledge there. He continues. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment before or therefore when his care falters. This is our God, our King, his relationship to us. Knowing this multiplies grace. It points me to further growth and knowledge. And it causes me to be able to live a life that brings glory to him. Even in the sins that demand repentance. I want to just finish with saying, uh, or giving you some of the wonderful applications Packer gives in the conclusion to his book. It's a huge book and it'll take you a while to read. You know, go so through it slowly. I try to read it every five years because there's just so much there. But he has four very practical points I want you to hear about what knowing God will do in your life. First, he says that those who know God have a great energy for God. Uh, I can almost tell the person who's in study or the person who's in study and fellowship just by the zeal or the energy they have to serve God. Even as imperfectly as we do it. You know, that person just wants to sign up for stuff or just wants to be it or just can't devour enough or wants to live it out in the workplace or wants to tell their neighbor about Christ. Knowing God will produce in you an energy. Packer says literally that those who know their God are sensitive to situations in which God's truth and honor are being directly or tacitly jeopardized. Uh, they become activists for Christ because they know their God and they know that this offends our God. And so they have an energy to serve God and represent God. Secondly, he says, as we come to know God, those who know God have great thoughts of God. In other words, as you come to know God, you will not read the kind of puny little God that is so often preached today. This kind of little, you're, you're, you know, kind of like a grandfather really is what he looks like in so many churches today. But as you read the word, that is not the depiction of God you get. You get this great God who's absolutely sovereign over everything. He's not at all sitting there biting his nails wondering what's going to happen. In fact, he's superintending over all things. And I love the passage in Daniel. When Daniel himself teaching Nebuchadnezzar, he says, The Most High is a sovereign over the kingdoms of men, talking about God. God knows and foreknows all things, and his foreknowledge is foreordination. It's not just that he knew what happened ahead of time. He orchestrates it to happen. That's the sovereign God that is spoken of in Daniel, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. He, you can't be a little sovereign. I mean, it's not, there's no such thing. You're, you're not a little sovereign. If God is sovereign, that means absolutely everything is under his command. And so those who know God have great thoughts of God. These were the thoughts that filled Daniel's mind, and they filled fill the minds of those great believers who've done things Amazing things for God. Thirdly, Packer notes that those who know God show great boldness for God. And this is connected to having energy for God, but it's not just energy. It's the ability to become a martyr if you have to. You know, people that knew their God, there was nothing less that they can do than to offer their life if the opportunity arose. That's what knowing God takes you to. Having great energy for God, having great thoughts of God, having great boldness for God. And finally, Packer says, those who know God have great contentment in God. There's no peace, absolutely no peace, like the peace of those whose minds 
possessed with full assurance that they have known God and have known, and God has known them. I, I, and a, I've had a relatively young ministry, obviously of a young church, and I have had opportunity, and I count it as blessed opportunity to, to be with saints towards the ends of their lives. And I have seen with my own eyes someone who knew God at a very young age was going to go to be with God and was content in that, was peaceful in that. And it comes only from knowing God, that you would have such great contentment. It's a kind of contentment that, speaking of Daniel once again, where his three friends who are about to be thrown into the furnace, and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, as Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to bow to false God, to himself. If this be so, our God whom we serve, Daniel's friends say, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. If he wants to, he can deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Such contentment from knowing God that we know that he could save us from this predicament if he wants, but if he doesn't, that's okay. I'm all right with that. Because he will have me saved ultimately. So, brothers and sisters, imagine the ludicrous nature of having an all-inclusive vacation paid for, yet insisting on paying for stuff everywhere you went. Imagine if you missed meals because you didn't read when they went and where they would be. Imagine if you missed entertainment because you didn't know. You had the right, you had the standing, but you just didn't know or you just didn't search it out. Peter here is showing us how the experience of God's grace, the sense that we have belonged to Christ, how it works together, grace and knowledge. This, these two are in concert, and we will see throughout the rest of the study how this is fleshed out, how we have to be aware of false teachings, major theme in 2 Peter, how we have to engage in studying of who God is, and we have to live it out. I love what Daniel 11.32 says. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your precious word, for in it are indeed precious and very great promises. Lord, I ask that as we endeavor in the study of Second Peter, that we would not lose sight of these first verses, that our position in Christ is where we start. It's the place you have given us in your kingdom because of the righteousness of Jesus, that we would live in light of all that you have granted us access to, not living as orphans, not living as people who do not have full standing with you. And help us, Lord, then to just dig in, to just go after knowing you. Pursue you, Father, as you have pursued us. And Lord, help us then to be a changed people who live for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to 146 together. Let's stand as the elders come to prepare the table and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Break Thou the Bread of Life. <laughs>